Well, let's enjoy the word together, yes? If you're visiting us for the very first time, my name is Tim. Really glad that you found the Bible Church today, and we trust that what you hear and see in this place might cause you to want to come back again and again and again. And if there's any way that we can help you to know a little bit more about who we are and what our passions are and how we love Jesus and love each other, we'd love to talk with you about that some more. But now our time is in the Word. And I'd like to begin by asking you this question. How many of you would recognize the name Sheila Burnford? Mm, no, nobody, nobody recognizes that name. Well, uh, I certainly cannot fault you for not knowing that name. But let me ask you this. What comes to your mind when I say the incredible journey? Anything come to your mind when I say that? Ah, now, now it kind of begins to gel a little bit. Yeah, Sheila Burnford, you wouldn't know this, but Sheila Burnford wrote The Incredible Journey. She wrote this book back in 1961 for children. And although the book was successful in Scotland and in England where Burnford lived, its sales suddenly skyrocketed worldwide when Walt Disney got a hold of the rights and turned it into a movie by the same title. Folks from my generation can probably remember back to when you saw that movie, went to the theater and saw that movie, or maybe you took your kids to see it if you're a little bit older. By the way, Disney knew that they really had a gold mine in this story. They remade the movie in 1993 for a whole new generation. They called it Homeward, Brown, Homeward Bound, uh, The Incredible Journey, but it's the same, it's the same story. And it's, it's the heartwarming tale about two dogs Luath and, and Bodger and a Siamese cat named Tao. And they are mistakenly abandoned by a caretaker and thus they're forced to trek across hundreds of miles of wild Canadian wilderness facing all kinds of dangers and threats from bears and mountain lions and flooded rivers. They nearly get killed more than once, if you remember the story. And I can still remember, as a six-year-old little boy, crying in the theater when I thought that the cat had drowned in the river. It was very traumatic for me. <laughs> but these three pets loyally care for each other, mile after brutal mile, and they prevail against overwhelming odds driven on by the desire to be reunited with their owner family. It's called the incredible journey because everybody had given up all hope that the three would ever survive such a long and arduous trek. You say, well, that's all really great, Tim, but what in the world does that have to do with us and this morning? Well, this morning, with Christmas just two weeks away, let me invite you to think about another incredible journey. In fact, it is hands down the most incredible journey that has ever been undertaken by anyone. Fellow Christian, the, the Christmas journey made by Jesus from majestic glory in heaven to the humble manger in Bethlehem has got to be the most incredible journey ever. You agree with me on that? Now, most of us know very well the Christmas story as it's given to us in Matthew and in Luke's Gospels. We know about Mary and Joseph and about the angels and the, the innkeeper and the, the shepherds and the guiding star and the, the searching magi. I mean, we know the story so well, in fact, that we, could, we can tell it uh, from memory. 
But it's the story of Christmas, well, really from, from our side, from, from an earthly perspective. Let's read the same Christmas story, not from Earth's point of view, not from our side, from our perspective, but let's read the Christmas story from heaven's perspective. Not from our side, but from God's side. And to do that, I will ask you to join me, if you would, in the Gospel of John this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 is where you'd like to be. And... Um, if you need a Bible today, you got out of the house without yours, just raise your hand. We've got somebody in the back that will be happy to share a copy of God's Word with you. If you don't own a Bible, we invite you to keep this Bible, write your name in it. You'll always have a Bible when you come back to the Bible Church. How's that? And then there's a note page in your bulletin. If you don't know the drill, just grab that as well if you wouldn't mind. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Christmas from God's Perspective. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We'll stop right there. We have the Christmas description from God himself in these verses. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, but it is really Christmas from God's perspective. His description of the most incredible journey that has ever been undertaken. Here in these verses, the Holy Spirit reveals no less than five reasons why for Jesus and really for us, the first Christmas was the most incredible journey that has ever happened. Some say it's a journey so incredible that it can't possibly be true. It's too far out there. It can't be true. And yet it is true, yes? The most incredible journey ever is totally true. So settle in with me, and, and I will ask you to think with me for a few moments about why the coming of Jesus is truly the incredible journey. 
The first reason, as you see it there on your note page, is because it was for Jesus a journey from heaven to earth. Now, to be sure, some really intrepid people have made some amazing journeys over the course of human history. Columbus, Magellan, Lindbergh, uh, Bert Rutan flew nonstop around the world several years ago. Uh, Americans on the moon? Really? That's an amazing journey. But no one has ever made the trek that Jesus made, which was a trek from heaven to earth. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, that word, Word, is how John chooses to introduce us to Jesus, right? If you've been a Christian for very long, you know that's where this is going. It's the word that both John's Hebrew and non-Jewish readers would have understood immediately. They would have understood that it was referring to Jesus. But it's a little bit more difficult. It's not a phrasing that we're familiar with. And yet even for us today, we know that a, a written or a spoken word is simply the expression, if you will, of what is going on in the heart or in the mind of a person. What's in here comes out of here, right? So right this moment, I am, I am expressing with words what's going on inside of me. I'm expressing that to you. And so John says, Jesus is the expression of God's heart to us. He is what God wants us to know about himself. He could have said, in the beginning was Jesus... But that would not say all that the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp about this, this person. The Word is Jesus. Jesus is the very real, very alive expression, the content, the substance of the living God. He is the living Word. And He was in the beginning, and He was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, our Bibles tell us that God resides in an unseen realm of unspeakable splendor and beauty and majesty and holiness, and that place is called heaven, right? We all know that. In the, 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 in the, the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer, Matthew 6, verse 9, our Father who is in heaven hallowed or holy or reverenced be your name. Heaven is where God lives. It's, it's his it's home. So in the beginning, we read, before Bethlehem, before the first Christmas, Jesus' home was where? It was in heaven. John says in verse 14, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Now, where's the father? The Father's in heaven. If the Son is with the Father, then the Son is in heaven. So before Jesus embarks on his incredible journey, he lives in a place of perfection, doesn't he? Sinless perfection, a place of full satisfaction with the best of everything, more magnificent than all the stars on a, a cloudless night, more beautiful than the most spectacular sunrise or sunset than you have, I have ever seen. The air is filled with music that is more moving than any music that you or I have ever heard. Every moment infinitely more joy-filled for Jesus than the happiest day that you and I have ever known. 
That was home for Jesus. And it had never not been his home. But the incredible journey brought him from there to here, to the earth. Again, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He moved from his home in heaven to our home here on earth. He was born to one of our peasant families uh, in one of our stables, in one of our villages, in one of our countries. On our sin-infected speck of dust, we call home. We call earth. Now, there is no way, brothers and sisters, for us to even remotely begin to imagine the clashing contrast between Jesus' home in heaven and his new home on earth. Even if you and I could this very moment, right now, this second, be transported from this beautiful home that we have here in Idlewild, and we could instantly be set down inside of one of those 8-foot by 10-foot cardboard shanties that sit on the garbage dump outside of the city of Manila, if that could happen, Right this second, a torrential downpour bringing mud and refuse swirling around our feet, the stench so powerful that our eyes are watering, and it's all we can do not to throw up. If we could be transported into that context, we would only begin to remotely sense what Jesus must have experienced as he leaves the glories of heaven and he steps into our world. The Word dwelt among us, says verse 14. On the first Christmas, the Son of God put the splendor of His holy heavenly home in the rearview mirror, if you will, turned His face toward our earthly home, and was born into the midst of this torrential downpour of our sin, the stench and the refuse of its consequences swirling around Him. And he says, this is where I choose to be. I choose to be here. The first Christmas was an incredible journey from heaven to earth. It was also an incredible journey from eternity into time. When God tells the Christmas story from his point of view, he says in verse 2 that the word was with God When? In the beginning, yes. If that expression sounds a little bit familiar to you, it should if you've been a Christian for any length of time. These are the opening words of the Bible, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John wants us to think of that verse when he writes These words in verse 2. He wants us to think about Genesis 1-1. Even before Genesis 1-1 and the words, In the beginning God created, there there were things that were happening. Before there was ever a creation, there was God and he was doing stuff. Things were happening in a time that we can only refer to as eternity past. That's the only way we can talk about it. Eternity past. A time before time. God was in that place of eternity past before the beginning of anything existed that does exist. And he was there 
And what John is saying is that in that eternity past place where there was nothing else yet, there was the Word. There was Jesus. Jesus was with God before the beginning of the time, space, material universe that you and I know of. Now, we can try to get our minds and kind of around that, but it's really hard to do to venture into eternity past and think about the beginning before time. If we go back as far as we can possibly imagine, 10,000 years, 10 billion years, a billion years times a trillion, a trillion billion years, however far back you can go in time, no matter how far back in your wildest imagination you might attempt to reach before the beginning, Jesus was what? He was there. He was there. And he was there with God. But then Jesus embarks on this incredible journey from eternity into time, into our time, and dwelt among us. He comes into our calendars. He comes into our clocks, into our ways of of thinking in terms of seconds and minutes and hours and, and days and weeks and months and years. He counts birthdays. He he marks off holidays. He lives in terms of a sunrise and a sunset. (laughs) He had never, ever done that. He never needed to do that. There was no sunrise. There was no sunset in heaven. He lived in unapproachable, all-consuming, holy light all the time. How confining it must have felt for the Son of God who had... Forever ago, lived in the expanse of an untimed eternity to suddenly live in time. There's no way we can remotely appreciate what a dramatic change for him that must have been. And yet he came. In fact, have you ever thought about the the truth that just by his coming on this incredible journey, he changed time? For you and me, time as we know it and understand it and talk about it. When he came into our time, he reset all the clocks, didn't he? He reset all the calendars. He changed time for us. It's an event worthy of that, for sure. But there was a time when our calendars were calculated by the the reigns of kings and queens. Um, A certain year might be called the 10th year of the reign of emperor so-and-so, right? We don't talk like that anymore. What do we do? We, we base all of our cal- calendars off the coming of Jesus. Today, all the calendars in the world are set in terms of Jesus stepping into time. Christians and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and even agnostics and atheists, everybody has to set their calendars by Jesus' time. I love that thought. Don't you love that thought? Because he stepped into time. Galatians 4.4 says it this way. But when the fullness of time had come. In other words, when the exact religious, cultural, and political conditions that were demanded by the Father's perfect plan were in place. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And we all say, amen and amen. But that was only possible because Jesus was willing to undertake this incredible journey from eternity into time. But it doesn't stop there. As God tells the Christmas story from his perspective, the third aspect that makes Jesus' journey so incredible is that it was a journey from spirit to spirit and body. It is possible that this is maybe the, the, the least understood part of the Jesus' Christmas journey, the part most wrapped up in what we might call divine mystery, spirit and body together. But just because it's hard maybe to grasp doesn't keep God from telling us about it in verse 14. The Word did what? Became flesh. If that is not highlighted in your Bible, boy, buy a highlighter. That's all I can really say. Jesus took to himself a physical body. Now that phrase, and the word became flesh, makes it clear that before the journey, God's son, the word, did not have our flesh as part of his person. Do we all understand that? He was not a part of the human race, as, as it were, before the first Christmas. His was a spiritual nature only, just like the Holy Spirit and just like the Heavenly Father, continued to be spirit only. Jesus will say in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You remember those words? Yeah? Before Bethlehem, no one could see Jesus as we think of seeing Him today. You couldn't touch Him in the physical sense because He didn't have a body to touch. The laws of physical existence that rule over us had no bearing on him at all because he had no physical body. He was spirit. Now, even as I say that, let's keep in mind that just because something, or in this case of Jesus, someone, just because something is invisible doesn't make it any less real, right? I mean, of all the generations that have ever lived, we ought to understand that best, right? I mean, we know that radio signals are real. We don't see them, but we know they're real. We're all carrying cell phones because they're real, right? There are television signals, x-ray signals. There's ultraviolet rays that are coming down from the sun. We can't see those. But boy, if we lay out on the beach too long, we're going to see their effect, right? Jesus was invisible, very real spirit. The laws of physical existence that rule over us had no bearing on him because he had no physical body. But then, then he, he willingly chose to make this incredible journey from the spirit realm into our realm, from his limitless existence to our limited finite time-space world. That meant that he would need to add a body to his existence, something new and never before experienced by him, he would add a body to his person, and the word would what? Become flesh. In other words, the Son of God not only determined to step into time, he determined to be confined at least in some measure by space, by our space, by our fleshly 
limited space. Can we even begin to fathom that? Not a single dimensional limitation as God the Son. Free reign, free movement in, among, over, through all that exists, outside of all that exists. And then the incredible journey. And suddenly everything changes. The Word becomes flesh. And if we really want to get specific, and we do then we need to remember that the incredible journey and this change from spirit to spirit and body did not begin on a cold night in Bethlehem. It began nine months earlier at conception. Think about that. That was the moment. That was the moment when John 1.14 actually happened. That's the moment when Philippians 2, 6, and 7 happened as well. How does it read? Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of, of us. Brothers and sisters, think about this. The, the infinite spirit son of God left heaven and willingly became contained in a microscopic human embryo. Think about that. He will not yet have eyes are, that are formed, or hands, or feet, or a brain, or, or a pumping heart for a little bit. God, though, at conception, is now in flesh. The Son of God who is described here in John 1 verse 9 as the true light who comes into the world for nine months was in total darkness in the womb of a virgin girl. Think about that. And when he was born, when that first Christmas day happened and he came into the world, he came in just like you and I came in. And he looked like all of us, six or seven pounds Unable to feed himself, eyes that couldn't focus, hands that flailed about wildly. He couldn't speak. He needed a diaper. And he was in body, utterly and totally dependent for every necessity of his life upon a recently married couple who have absolutely no parenting experience. Incredible. But even more incredible is the truth that when verse 14 says the word became flesh, that was not some passing temporary change that Jesus took upon himself, which he would then one day throw off and go back to being that limitless spirit son of God that he had been. Never think of Jesus in that way because when he took that body upon himself, for him it was forever. That was not a temporary accommodation for him. He would bear that forever. From Bethlehem to Calvary and from Calvary into eternity. This will be permanent eternal change to his person, to his identity. The Son of God has a body forever. There's no going back for Jesus once the incredible journey has been undertaken. 
The body that was conceived inside of Mary is the same body that was born on Christmas Day, the same body that escaped to Egypt and then grew up in Nazareth. It is the same body that hangs from the cross. It is the same body that is laid in a tomb. It is the same body that will rise from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. It is the same body that bears the scars in the hands and feet inside. It is the same body that is glorified and ascends up to heaven and is there right now. And it is the same body that Jesus will possess when he comes back comes back to take us to be with him. It is the same body that he will forever and ever and ever through all of eternity possess. Glorified. Fellow Christian, let's not miss the wonder and the amazement of this. When spirit became spirit and body, not only did God come to us, he becomes one of us. God in flesh appearing, the old Christmas carol says. God in flesh appearing. Man, what is captured in those words? Hopefully we won't sing that song quite so casually ever again. What an incredible journey. But let's not stop there. Flip your note page over and let's share another part of this incredible journey as seen from God's point of view. Jesus' journey was also from deity to deity with humanity. One of the most incredible parts of the Christmas story is the reality that in Jesus, deity and humanity are joined together forever. And by this, we're saying much more than simply that Jesus now has a body. This is different than that. Here we're saying that Jesus fully and completely possesses our humanness. What makes us us. In verse 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God, right? Deity, we, we get that. Everything that God is, infinite, eternal, unchanging, sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent, just, holy, truthful, loving, everything that makes God God, Jesus is and infinitely so. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. Who is that? Well, that's Jesus, has made him known. It was full God, full on God, that journeyed to earth, entered time, assumed a body, and then became human. 100% human, possessing all the fullness of humanity, yet without any of the sin or any of the effects of sin. He made his dwelling among us, verse 14 says. And the us there, that's John's way of saying he became fully human. He became us. Whatever being fully human can mean, possessing emotions and feelings, having thought processes, loving relationships, absorbing sorrow and pain, expressing joy and happiness, all the things that make us human, Jesus has that now, without sin. That's Jesus. And the miracle of it all is that in becoming fully human, Jesus never ever for an instant stops being fully God. It is a mystery, but it is true. 100% God, 100% human, making Jesus utterly and completely unique, one of a kind. There is no one like him. Amen? 
Now, why is this from deity to deity with humanity such a critical part of the incredible journey story? Why is it so important? Why does full deity have to join with full humanity? Well, brothers and sisters, the short answer is this. We sinners needed a savior, right? We needed a savior. We needed someone who could represent us fully, accurately, completely represent us and stand in our place before a holy God and pay a sin debt we could never pay. But he has to be fully like us in order to represent us. Our sin cut us off from God, the scriptures tell us, and destined us for an eternity separated from him in a place called hell. Only one fully like us but completely sinless could rightly stand in our place and represent humanity to a holy God. One person could perhaps pay for the sins of another if that person had no sin of his own, but the Bible tells us that none of us are sinless, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one to represent us. Only God is sinless. And so what does God do? Well, God joins himself to humanity, forming the one and only sinless human being who can then step into our shoes and stand before God and represent us to him. Now, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. We'll put it up on the screen for us. Check this out. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, the children being you and me, Therefore, since we share in flesh and blood, he himself all likewise partook of the same things. <laughs> Whatever we are, he took on as well. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, with the exception of sin, right? So that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Remember that? Oh, that payment for the sins of the people. Only God is sinless, and so God joins himself to humanity, forming the one and only sinless human being who can stand in our place. We can't stop with that thought. With the simplest arithmetic, we could figure out that one perfect person could perhaps pay for the sin of a sinful person, but only one, a one-to-one -one kind of a relationship. But there's no way one perfect person could do that for all the people in all of history through all of time. The math doesn't work. One for one, maybe. The only way that one person can atone for all is if somehow you can combine, uniquely combine, all of man's humanity with all of God's infiniteness, right? All of his infinity. And then and only then could the one fully human, fully God, man, pay for all sin, atone for all sin in all of time, in all the places where sin is. It couldn't happen unless that man was full deity and full humanity. And that's exactly what Romans 5.15 declares. 
But the free gift, oh, the free gift of God, salvation, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for for many. Only God could do that as he became fully human. What an incredible journey, deity with humanity. And all of that brings us to that fifth and final thought as God shares Christmas from his point of view. What's the thought? Well, just this. The incredible journey was from the very beginning always about the cross. Always about the cross. From a manger to the cross. For God, Christmas has never been about the, the, the heartwarming, all good inside, cozy, fuzzy feelings that are associated with the Bethlehem manger. You know, we, 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 we create these little nativities and they're so cute and soft and, and we put them on our mantle and they've got this little stable and the baby Jesus in a manger and there's some shepherds and some sheep and, and wise men coming off from the side and it's all, oh, it feels so good. When God thinks about Christmas... That is not what he thinks about. Because for God, it was never about the manger. It was always about the cross. His son's incredible journey was always about his death upon a cross to redeem sinners. There had to be a manger, but only so there could be a cross. And if we don't get that, if we don't get that, we really don't get Christmas, do we? I don't think we understand Christmas. Not from God's point of view. That truth is beyond doubting as God tells us the Christmas story. Look once again at verses 4 and 5. In him was what? Life. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin, relationship with God forever. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines in the what? In the darkness. In the sin of our world, the light of Jesus shines. God knows the true condition of the human race. It's lost in the darkness of sin. It is dead in transgression and sin, Scripture says. He sends the one who is light and life via a manger, but always with the cross as the ultimate destination. Some, we're told, here even now, when they realize that God sent his son, they want to live in the darkness still. They choose to remain in darkness. John says that here. It's the saddest part of the Christmas story as God tells it. But then in verse 12, God says, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. Through what Jesus would accomplish on the cross, the dead live. They're reborn, as it were, into a brand new relationship with God. So radical is the rebirth that we can legitimately be called by God his kids. Children of God. The incredible journey of Jesus has never been about a manger in Bethlehem. It has always been about the cross of redemption. Verse 16, 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Love lavished on us through the person of Jesus at the point of the cross. In fact, it couldn't be more clear than it is in Philippians 2, 6, 7, and 8. Here's how it reads. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we say, amen and amen. It can legitimately be said, church family, that the Christmas story is a story of journeys. I mean, think about it. It's the journey of of Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's the journey of the angels from heaven to a shepherd's field. It's the journey of the shepherds to the Bethlehem stable. It's the journey of the magi from the east to find the Christ child in Bethlehem. Some amazing journeys took place that very first Christmas. But the greatest journey of all, the most incredible journey of them all, Well, that was the journey of the Son of God from heaven to earth, from eternity into time, from spirit to body, from deity to humanity, from manger to cross. That's the most incredible journey of all. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling Among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Oh, what do we say to you, Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit and you, Lord Jesus? What do we say on the heels of such incredible truth? Thank you, first of all. Thank you for sharing, Heavenly Father, your perspective on Christmas with us. Thank you for reminding us of all. In fact, we barely scratched the surface of it, but for reminding us of so much of what it means for you to send your Son to us. And Lord Jesus, may we never, ever again think about you and not think about these truths related to you when you came how far you came and what was required of you to come into our world and to become us without sin. And how can we do anything but say thank you for coming knowing full well that the real journey was to the cross where you would pay our sin debt and change and transform our lives and our eternity. How we thank you how we thank you. In this moment, perhaps if you have never yourself personally realized that God came to earth for you, that he put on a body for you, that he went to the cross for you, perhaps in this moment the light has, has finally dawned on your heart And this would be the moment that you would say, what do I do now? What what do I do with this truth? Scripture is very clear. 
You confess your sin. You acknowledge that you are sinful and that you need a Savior and that Jesus would be that Savior for you. You believe in what he did for you, that he came and he died, that he was buried and that he rose again for you. You believe that. Confess it with your mouth and you will be saved. Confess it as a heart change and a way of thinking and you will be saved. We'd love to help you begin this journey with Jesus this morning. If, if you make that decision in this moment, we're not going to ask you to walk the aisle, but we would ask you to let us know how we can help you to grow in this new relationship with Jesus because your life has just been changed forever. What a glorious truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit. Thank you for making the incredible journey for us. And all God's people said, amen and amen.